morning, and welcome to our favorite podcast, It's Made of People. Just oh, because that yeah. is not the name of the podcast, you know it's Did greater than code. Again? It's greater than code. Greater than code. With me, Jessica Kerr, and the even greater Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica. And also with the lovely Coralide Ada MK. Hey, everybody. We have a very special guest today, Jerome Hardaway. Jerome is a Memphis native currently residing in Nashville. He's the executive director of Vets Who Code, a 501c3 that trains early stage transitioning veterans in web development and helps them find gainful employment in the software industry. His work has been featured in Huffington Post, and he's been invited to the White House, Dreamforce, and Facebook for his work with veterans. Jerome, how are you today? Uh, hey, Carlin. Uh, I'm doing insanely uh, well. Happy two days from now, I'll be in, back in San Francisco for a Christmas present for my wife. So, like, that's really um, what I'm looking forward to. You're supposed to say you're looking forward to the podcast today. I'm looking forward to the podcast today, but I can't. It's, I've never been to a football game in my life. And so, like, really? this is a new, like, yeah, I'm not a, I'm a big nerd. I'm not one of those, like, dudes. Like, I'm in the South, but Which everybody in the South does football. Which is why you haven't been to a football game. Yes, it really is. People look at now, me like, you mean like, like you a okay? professional football game or any football game? Any football games. I didn't do the whole Little League thing when I was a kid. Didn't go to any high school or middle school games. Didn't go to any games I was in college because I was deployed while I was going through college. I've never done anything like a game. I think my first basketball game that I actually went to was, I think, three years ago. So I, I kind of avoided those things. I never had interest in them, so I just focused on things I did enjoy. I like combat sports. I always went to boxing uh, events and things like that. But basketball and uh, football, I kind of dodged. So, Jerome, we'd like to start off by understanding your origin story. Where did you develop your superpowers, and when did they first come about? <laughs> um, what are your I superpowers? I think my superpowers are, is hard work and discipline. I think that's what really makes me me. I don't think I'm uber talented on any one level, but I just think I, I'm able to set a goal and put my nose to the grindstone to reach it. And I developed a lot of that, I think, from childhood coming from family that has a lot of veterans inside of it. So both sides of the family has veterans, and uh, that was kind of instilled in me and then doubled down when I joined the military. So, you know, I guess that's my superpower. I'm capable of waking up at 0430 in the morning every day and not um, change that. So that's I think that's my major superpower, if you ask my wife. She hates early mornings. So the fact I wake up and I'm extra happy makes her think I'm a freak of nature. Yeah, I'm really good at waking up at 010 and um, <laughs> taking about an hour and a half to drink my coffee, then um, figuring out what to do with my hair, and then uh, getting to work. So that's my superpower. So, Jerome, did you always know you would be a veteran? Negative. It was a last-minute decision. I actually had a scholarship to go to Pacific University because I was in piano, performing arts, and I just changed my mind at the last minute because I was like, you know, everybody pretty much has created all the best classical music there is, so let me do something else that would be just as meaningful. I never wanted to not have meaningful work, so just rehashing the same people's work didn't seem like a great life goal for me. So after that, I decided I was going to take the ASVAB right after the ACT and SAT. And I ended up scoring high enough to where I could get into the Air Force. And I was like one of the first Air Force veterans in my family. No, I am. I'm the first Air Force vet in my family. Funny story of 
how I ended up going into my job code, which is uh, Security Forces and Phoenix Raven, is I initially was able, I was initially supposed to go in for finance. And I decided when I turned 18 that I was going to go to the recruiter and tell him I wanted the coolest job, most hardcore job you guys have that I can get into immediately. And then he set me up for uh, security forces. And my mom, she didn't know about any of this until I was on the plane and the recruiter was telling her that she was taking everything really well. And she was like, well, he's just going to sit behind a desk and crunch numbers, right? And he was like, no, that's not going to happen at all. He's uh, he joined for security forces. They were sending him to a base where he can go to uh, Phoenix Raven program after that. And she was like, what does all this mean? And he explained it to her. And I had most terrifying voicemail on my cell phone after I graduated from basic to the point where I didn't go home for like a full year. I was like, no, she's going to kill me. I'm not going to go anywhere near that. If I don't kill you, you'll die at work. (laughs) Yeah, that basically was. And I I didn't even, like, I was, like, talking to her and trying my best to avoid going home. I was stationed in Korea, and she, to make me come home, she literally called a command post. So she jumped the chain of command all the way up in another country and called the command post. And they called my commander, and my commander called my uh, leadership all the way down to my first line supervisor and it was like, yo, your mom said you need to go home, like, because she hasn't seen you. So <laughs> when it, when you come for your R&R, you're going home. Like, that's an order, dude. Like, you got to go home. It's like, dang, I was just going to chill in South Korea for a month. So that was your very funny. Awesome. Yeah, she's uh, the original gangster, as I like to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> so when did coding come into the picture, Jerome? Uh, coding came into the picture. Actually, when I look back at it, coding came into the picture some time ago, like before I even got in the military, because I was really interested in advertising and digital marketing when I was in high school. Saw a movie, uh, Mel Gibson's What Women Want, and it's just funny when he gets struck by lightning and all of a sudden he can hear the thoughts on women. But he worked in an ad agency. And I was like, well, you know, ad agency seems pretty like a pretty cool place where you get to just think of ideas to make people buy stuff. Well, what are all the jobs that aren't in the advertising world, and one of them was web developer. Well, I thought about that, then I tabled it, didn't think about it again until 2009, 2010, when I got out of the military, and I realized all the jobs they wanted to offer me during the Great Recession were either really sucky or really dangerous, and those are like my two options, were either security guard or go back overseas to private military, and I was like, I don't want to do either one of those. So what are my other options? What is something that I can take my discipline and my ability to think and just put my nose to the grindstone and learn? And web development turned out to be a great one. My first job was a analyst for the Department of Homeland Security for their TWIC program. And I took a year off of that just to take care of my auntie while she was sick. And then I moved into a marketing, digital marketing position at a nonprofit. And then everything just kind of soared off through like one type of crazy incident in which there was a young veteran who ended up dying. And I used my software engineering skills that I picked up during the time to help his family bury him and start an education fund for his daughter. And from there, I ended up getting a scholarship to General Assembly and then General Assembly ended up like seeing the work I was doing. And I ended up introducing me to other great companies. I ended up getting my first job out of General Assembly, going from one job to a General Assembly, another job, six weeks into the program. So I spent like the second half of General Assembly just networking and things of that nature. 
ever since then, I did a year of that job and then shopping myself for other jobs, seeing what other jobs wanted while building my uh, nonprofit and teaching veterans and helping veterans get jobs to the point where I was like, well, it's time for me to go full time instead of part time. And that's where I am. I'm, if I'm not building or teaching, I'm learning and uh, talking to amazing people like you guys. So that I think that's my whole code journey. How did you hear about General Assembly? How did you get started with that? I don't General even. Assembly. General Assembly is a software code school uh, headquartered in uh, New York. I saw their Opportunity Fund for Veterans program. And because I was in digital marketing and also in the veteran space while doing that, I had a very big veteran following. I always shared resources. And one of the resources was General Assembly. And I knew that being in the South, being in an area where transportation and healthcare, a lot of people don't even think about software engineering as a way to transition successfully into the civilian workforce. And what happened was for us, like I decided I was going to take that chance on myself, which would be an example. And that's how everything happened. And like when they heard the work I was doing when I was and what I wanted to do when I wanted to create Vetsu Code, they were like, wow, you're like a great individual. And they just they were like, we can't wait to have you here. So that was what happened. How did the idea come to you to start the nonprofit? For me, it was a common sense thing. Uh, no one was doing it, but I saw that jobs, when it came to tech, uh, were going unfilled. They were getting more and more jobs. And I saw veterans were coming back home. We had this 2% of the population coming back home that were constantly and consistently being told they didn't have the skills. So I put two and two together. What if we could train people that were coming home and consider not having the skills that were like discipline focused, also a lot of cognitive thinking, because a lot of people don't think that veterans have that skill set, which is the biggest thing from false, and take all that information and put them in jobs that actually mattered, like they actually could use these skill sets. And that way we can solve both industries' problems. Military has a problem with transitioning veterans not being able to get jobs. Tech sector has a problem with there's not enough talent, not enough people who can do the work. So I was like, let's find these people, let's train them up, and let's create a perfect marriage of two problems and solving them. Did you initially find good funding sources, or is that a case that you had to kind of make to people and kind of work hard to get them to get behind? <laughs> very funny story. East Coast and West Coast has always been very friendly to Vetsuko. They love what we do in regards to funding. We actually, until uh, this year, we never even really had to focus on going to get grants and things of that nature. But as we're growing, we're 2017, we're doing that. The South hasn't been so much because, of, like I said, even though I've won numerous awards and things here, their sector doesn't really understand it. And, you know, most of their tech is really, really old. So if you're really not talking Java or .NET, their eyes are glazing over because a lot of the, se the tech sector isn't controlling the tech sector in the South. What's controlling the tech sector in the South is healthcare and transportation, which is really weird when you go to like New York or you go to San Francisco and the people in the technology sector are setting the pace of what the companies are using as opposed to, like I said, down here where it's the healthcare industry and a lot of their technologies haven't been updated for the past 10, 15 years and they don't see any reason to change or update in the same way with uh, transportation you know they don't see any reason or any way to get smarter or to change what they're doing so it just it varies regionally we've had to we started we went from focusing on teaching veterans everywhere to as time gone on focusing on areas that were smart or friendliest to us 
Uh, and it kind of helped doing that because we were able to train get those markets veterans that could have the uh, impact that we wanted. What language and frameworks do you teach at Vatucat? Well, we call it a VWC stack. Uh, but what it is, is a Ruby on Rails with integrations of JavaScript frameworks. So basically the process goes, you learn Ruby, then you learn Rack, learn how to build a Ruby gem using Rack, uh, you learn uh, Sinatra, then from Sinatra you learn Rails, then we start going into the front-end JavaScript pipeline, asset pipeline, things of that nature. Then we start using NPM and uh, Angular, then they use React, then Electron, then Ember. So that's uh, the process of going through. You're learning how to use these frameworks in conjunction with Ruby on Rails because that helps them fortify the skills they've already learned, which is why we call it crawl, walk, run. And it also helps them gain confidence because the more, as long as they know they're able to do something right, where they're messing up on a level that they didn't really understand, they're not, you know, as going as insane. I've seen, uh, in my experience, I've, I've talked to several code schoolers that they'll get one stack then they'll move to another stack and they just start feeling like they're not a good engineer or a good developer. And what one of our biggest things that we decided we were going to solve was let's make sure that their confidence is high during the entire time. They don't feel like they're not going to succeed or be good enough. And Ruby tools and Ruby instructional things and Ruby resources that we can point them to if they want more help, things of that nature, are just easier to access than other languages. So that's, I think that was my first reason for going into Ruby and then moving on into JavaScript. Yeah. yeah Ruby so much more forgiving and the resources out there, you know, they, you can't really compete with it on the instructional side. A lot of people, there's a lot of talk about how JavaScript is more prominent in the community and how every job wants it and how the data lines up. Well, you know, data, you can't really just apply data in terms of big data, just to people. You have to understand that there are emotions and there's a level of emotional intelligence that needs to be addressed. And that's why we focused on Ruby and Ruby on Rails, the integrating those frameworks with Ruby on Rails. How did you develop your curriculum? Hiring managers. What Our idea was go straight to the hiring managers and see what they wanted. How we even built Vetsu Code was that I decided that I was going to interview at least once a month with a different hiring manager. And if I got the yay, pitch of Etsu code, if I got the nay, then I would ask for after action review and see what I did wrong, what I did right. Things of those nature to make sure that, um, see where we are, where our weaknesses are, where our strengths are. And that's how we created our curriculum is, um, one of the first things that we realized that was going on, and this was like over a year half ago was that code schoolers were not really strong CS-wise, computer science fundamentals. And we looked at the IEEE.org and we were looking at what people in computer science was learning outside of code schoolers. And outside of 14 credit hour courses that goes into a computer science degree, a lot of it was math. So we focused a lot on those 14 core courses and integrating those into our curriculum. Uh, things of that nature, seeing how TDD and BDD being used in the workforce, being able to jump into the code, uh, making our guys and girls read a lot of code. Those are all things like instead of them just focusing on knocking out project after project and build after build, read and be able to interpret, understand and problem solve and actually solving coding challenges regularly. That is what we focused on when we came to our curriculum. What was the average student like? that came to you, what point were they at? Were they just coming back home or had they been home for a while looking and then decided that they wanted to learn how to program? At what stage are you usually finding people coming to you? 
the average stage that we're finding is a the troop is already motivated and b they're at a stuck point uh they've gone through a lot of free courses that you know were okay but they didn't feel like they were getting what they wanted or you know they just couldn't find that next level I would say about 70% of our people that come to us, they're coming from either another code-focused MPO for veterans, or they're coming from Code Academy, or they're coming from Free Code Camp. They're coming from these organizations, and they're wanting something more. And they, you know, they know from they've heard from other shows or from reading about me that I'm a really no-nonsense, skills-pay-to-bills-based guy, and. Uh, that's how we focus on our curriculum, we focus on, you know, community is really nice and it's great and it's definitely needed. But when you're in that co-interview alone, you need to be able to bring it by yourself. It's almost like a boxing match. Uh, your team is very important, but in the end, it all comes down to your performance that night. The coding interview is boxing match. That's a really interesting metaphor. That's so true. It really is about can you tough it out under pressure? And yet, once you get in, hopefully it's more about working with the team. Yes, it is. If anyone, I mean, can you name one job outside of software engineering where people train exclusively for the interview? I, I can't, like, I, and I'm from the military, like, you know, going through basic training, you don't train. I, if you think basic training in the military is the prepping for the interview, no, you're already in. You just have to pass basic training and get to the core uh, get the base level skills. But the co-interview, people right now, my favorite read is googly as heck, uh, John Washam. Uh, he, you know, spent eight months training just for the Google interview. There's no other career field where people are just training for the interview. They're not even thinking about the job. They are just thinking about doctors and lawyers. They trade, train for the certification exams, right? Yeah. Lawyers have passed the bar. I have no idea what doctors have to do because I'm not that smart. I have lawyers in my family, but no doctors, so I don't talk to them about that. So, Jerome, what's the experience like for someone who just gets started with your program? It is a mixture of – it's a immersive online experience, what we like to say. We're using Slack. We're using Skype. We're using our Google Hangouts. They're meeting up with me regularly. They have homework and, of course, code of conduct rules, things of that nature and they get you know we're one of the few nonprofits where you get so many tools to also help you on your journey that you know our veterans on average they get about four to five hundred dollars worth of free resources just for being in our program which is totally different from other orgs another organization they do a lot of in regards to having scholarships with different code schools which is cool if you can find a veteran with that regard uh, they can actually pay the rest of that money. For veterans that don't have that uh, money, you have to make sure that they, you know everybody deserves a chance that a veteran, not just those that are good enough to have the 10K on hand or be able to make that micro loan from some of these upstart uh, loaning places. So you know that's what we focus on is making sure that it's a really great experience. And our Slack side chats, every veteran loves our Slack side chats. So that's one thing that we also bring to the table. We had veterans. Our last like chat was uh, DHH, and next month we're gonna try to do one with Sandy. We've been having her in the docket for some time. Sandy Metz. It's just been hectic due to you know November was Veterans Day week, and then you know then the holidays came around. So hopefully in January when everybody's is refocused, we'll be able to have her in for a chat. 
You spoke about money as an obstacle to learning and the coding interview as an obstacle. What particular obstacles do veterans have that other people don't? Network is one of the biggest ones due to the fact that while you're overseas serving or you're first and foremost, the outside of like San Francisco and well, I guess it's San Diego and there's a base in New York and there's one near D.C., Outside of those, most military installations are in like the crappiest land in America. So they're nowhere near big cities, things of that nature. So the type of code boot camps that are really popular are nowhere near these facilities. And these places aren't going to those facilities because there's no money to make outside of the military. So that's problem number one. We think that the average human being moves no more than 50 miles from their mother or from their last duty station in the military. So that's issue number one. Second is network. They don't have the network to even know where's the right way to go. Like when I speak to veterans, they don't even know any of the free resources out there for learning how to code or what's a meetup, things like that. As you know, we're literally having to teach them from the ground up how to learn about the community first and then the resources and then learn how to code. We have to teach them all of that, how to find the meetups in your community, how to ask the right question in order to find your answer when you're researching on your own. Those are two really big obstacles, that being location and uh, network. So learning to code isn't the first step. First, you have to learn how to learn to code. And before that, you have to learn where you might learn to learn how to code. And before that, somebody's got to tell you why you would even try. Yes. Luckily for us, we usually have the why already answered. One thing that we find ourselves very lucky and grateful for is that our outreach is pretty much minimal. We don't have to worry about veterans trying to find us. They just do. It's been one of the things that we thought was like the craziest things that we don't have to really like. A lot of our work goes toward when it comes to outreach is focusing on the civilian sector and the tech sector, but not so much as the veterans. The veterans, they want this skill. They want to be a part of this. They want to learn how to do this stuff and do this stuff professionally because it's skill-based. There's something that they can you know, just like, once again, going back to that boxing analogy, is something that if they put the work in, they'll, they'll receive the reward. And, as, you know, as a military veteran, there's nothing more rewarding than being able to measure your skill day to day and see how well you've gotten just by putting in a good day's work and waking up the next morning and doing it over and over and over again. And you're realizing just how much easier things have become for you or how you're able to accept newer and bigger challenges that originally you were terrified of. That's what makes veterans really wanting to learn how to code or get in the tech community. So a veteran superpower is knowing that work translates into skill. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's a veteran. Yeah, I can say that. Every veteran I, I've met, they like the idea of putting their mind to work and pushing day in and day out to become better. Uh, one of the things that we say in our Slack channel is, you know, your goal is to only get 1% better every day. And the funny thing about 1% is that your 1% changes every day. Uh, one day your 1% is hello world. The next day your 1% is doing a full single page application. Before you know it, your 1% is bringing back a app that has failed back into making it running in production. And it's so... You know, it's so amazing to see people that they change, like even to see the growth in our students. We have one, Jacob, who he wanted to learn a lot. He was coming in for a lot of front end heavy focus education. And we were looking at him while he's going through the front end section. And when it came to getting the code correctly, he was doing fine. Everything in regards to our style guys, he was doing correctly. But when it came to his design eye and his idea of design psychology, 
that was his uh, main problem. And we were able to tell him, hey, this is a, a little antiquated, a little too army, as we called it. And he laughed and he was like, oh, OK, I got you. And we gave him some resources. We did some more education with him. And within a week, he was up to par with all the other students. And he's he has a very fun story because he's one of the few, uh, one of the regular people, actually, that either get married during a cohort or they have a kid during a cohort. He actually had a kid. And, you know, he wrote a post about how to learn how to code while having kids because he has like three kids. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, why didn't you stop at one? Like one kid, I have one and he's a freaking handful. And I'm like, I don't know how you could do more than like do that two more times. That's insane. Uh, <laughs> like maybe I'm the only one. Thing. I'm like, once you go past, you know, once you go past one, you know how that happens. So like do everything you can to avoid doing it again. So one kid is a, is a handful. Like, wow. So he wrote this article and it was so insightful. And I just, I pick his brain all the time because he finds the time to be dedicated. And when I speak to other educators, it's very funny because they like, even when it comes to colleges, things of that nature, they say the students that perform the most, um, the best are usually the ones with kids because they don't have time. So they're really good with that time Uh management. So, you know, it was just, I learned things from our troops uh, just as much as they are, you know, I'm teaching them things. That's a good point. There's a saying that if you want something done, give it to the busiest person because they'll crunch it out. I've had jobs where there wasn't really enough work and I would kind of like hoard my tickets and work (laughs) on them very slowly so that I wouldn't run out and actually be bored. So if you're having trouble getting your work done or being motivated, try having a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are. Then your time will seem so much more precious. I did find that after um, we had my daughter... My life changed a lot, and I didn't have time to do all the things that I had done before, but that made me prioritize the things that I had time to do and really focus on things that were important to me. Yes. Right. When there's always more time, well, you can always do it later, so why do it now? Also, what you mentioned about football back at the very beginning, of all the things that you prioritized and learned, football just fell off the list. And there's always going to be something like that, that people are like, what? You've never done this? you know, I haven't seen any TV shows in forever. And there's just something's got to go when you have a mission. Yes. (laughs) It's very, um, one of the things that we always tell our troops is that, you know, this is going to be really time consuming. Even if we try to make the lessons as concise and precise as possible, but the homework is going to get you because this is a time and grade skill. You get in what you put out. The more you're coding, the better coder you'll be. The more you're working about data structures and algorithms, the better you'll be at this. Uh, You know, when we're talking about things that you think you'll never use, like big O notation and things of that nature, uh, that'll make you better for the code interview. And it's very funny because I always tell them that the first person your spouse or significant other is going to get mad about mad at is me. I mean, is you. The second person is always going to be me. So our goal is to hurry up and get as much stuff done before your spouses are mad at me. Because it's fine with them being <laughs> upset at you. And I've had it every cohort. There's always taking so much time. And one of our students is like, uh, my boyfriend says that I'm playing on the computer. And I'm like, you know what? I'm married. My wife still says I'm playing on the computer. So it's like you'll you'll never grow out of that. And the longer you're in this, they don't they don't see it as like hard work. They see it as fun because you don't come home complaining at the same level that they do. Like my wife 
because she's in the medical field. She, you know, she's always comes home complaining, and I'm never complaining because I'm like, I actually enjoy the people I deal with. So, <laughs> so, like, I go and deal with friends all day. And she says, well, you know, not all of us can go and play on the computer all day and deal with our friends and deal with people that we actually enjoy. And I was like, sorry for being happy. Definitely one of the privileges <laughs> that of is our such career. a privilege. It is. And then once you get experience, then you probably have some choice of job opportunities. So if you don't like the people you work with, you have a choice. Yes. After I you get past that, that interview. Yes. The best part is that, you know, there's so many opportunities and, you know, going from just to find the right environment for you, our most accepting environment for you. And that's one thing that we're also working on, especially in 2017, is uh, we're starting to build relationships with uh, like women who code and things of that nature to ensure that we, when it comes to building a community, we can, like, our idea is instead of us building a community, send them out into the wild with the civilians to build a community with them because it's all about social integration. And finding the right environment community for you is really important. So as a civilian, this is the important question. How can we make the community more welcoming to veterans? There are several things. Uh, first things first is pay attention to us and the talent pipeline. One of the things that hurts veterans in all industries is that after the Vietnam War, uh, military joining the military pretty much fell drastically down Like when it came to being a coming a veteran or serving in in those armed forces. So a lot of people in, high, in HR, their last person to join the military was usually World War II, which if you think is like, you know, 50, 60, 70, if you think of World War One, if their last person was World War One, that's over 100 years ago. So they don't, the only thing they know about the military is stuff they saw on TV, which is all fantasy, farthest thing from the truth. We're very happy that there are organizations uh, like Got Your Six that are now going to Hollywood and telling them, hey, write the real stuff, write how the military really is. Not making our guys even look like they're psychopaths or they are broken, which we're neither. And show the real impact of veterans do and how they really learn and what they really are. So I think that's the first thing that ends in the civilian tech sector we can do is start actually having these community liaisons that can actually go into the veteran community or aren't afraid to go into the veteran community and actually see how they can help that tech talent pipeline. And second, um, find useful different things, you know, to integrate both the cultures together. Uh, Memorial Day is right around the corner. Well, not right around the corner. I'm sorry. It's like, what, five months from now. But Memorial Day, Veterans Day, those are great holidays for the community to really encompass and being able to go and help like with veteran opportunities of veteran problems. Like the number one problem in veterans actually isn't PTSD, it's sleep, because there are that's what the doctors at the VA are consider an epidemic with own veterans. Our community has more sleeping disorders than the average community. My wife says I'm starting to like not be able to sleep throughout the night and stuff because I'm, I don't know what she says. It's some doctor term, which I'm, uh, sound like I need one of those weird breathing masks that I'm never going to buy. I'll die in my sleep before I get one of those things. <laughs> but that's one of the things that, you know, maybe helping create apps or products that help get your sleep rhythm better or you know, even doing crazy things like going on Memorial Day and doing a CrossFit merch. Uh, I always recommend if you're going to do that, get your most fit person on your team to do that. Don't go out there if you're not in shape and end up throwing up all over the place and stuff like that. Because I don't want to be the person that gets in trouble for it. <laughs> Somebody has a heart attack out there. So things like that or having military focused hackathons. Those are really fun. 
things about solving problems. Like veterans love solving problems. I think that's the number one tool and resource veterans bring to the table is about how to get stuff done without all the resources in an uh, expedient manner. Because with us, time isn't money. Time is life. That's how we are trained is that you need to hurry up. You need to get this mission done. You get this done right and you need to get it done as fast as possible. Or, you know, somebody may not make it home for Christmas. So with that thought process in mind, that's how we train. And that's what we focus on. What's the best way to solve this problem as fast as possible? And what's not, and we don't marry ourselves to tools. We marry ourselves to solving the problem, which as you see, like sometimes in the community, people marry themselves to the tool. They marry themselves to the language. And that's not what veterans do. They marry themselves to whatever is the problem to solve it. Now, there are some things that are just people won't go past, like, for instance, as you guys saw with, I don't know if you guys ever heard of General Pettis, uh, Mattis, I'm sorry, I just messed up his name, a whole Marine course going to come get me. But General Mattis, he basically, there were things that people were talking about in regards to let's go back to a very taboo subject of torture. He was like, well, torture doesn't work. And this is like, you know, we call him Mad Dog. It's called Mad Dog for a reason. But he was like, you can actually get more from a uh, you actually solve the problem better with just using cigarettes and beer because and that's an actual thing is which you know being able to talk and actually level with people that are considered prisoners or captives has proven more effective and there's less consequences on our end so that's one way of solving problem we just said no we're not going to do that because it's smarter to do it this way let me turn the question around what can people in the tech community not do that sometimes we do do and makes veterans feel uncomfortable in ways we wouldn't understand. Roger that. Uh, assume. Assume that we're stupid. I think that's the biggest thing that happens a lot. Or assume there's no leadership if you're an enlisted troop. Uh, for some strange reason, there's another stigma out there where veterans who are in the enlisted corps don't get treated the same way that veterans who become officers. Officers are automatically deemed as, oh, they actually give orders and stuff of that nature, but that's the furthest thing from the truth. Every person that serves the military is in some form way given leadership roles, from the youngest troop to the person that's been in 20 years. And what we see is that when you see enlisted or first term, someone has served four years or six years, you automatically want to put them on the totem pole because all you assume is that this person, they just follow orders. And when first thing is, everybody follows orders in the military. Second thing is, when someone makes it past three years, they're usually in some form of first tier leadership in something. They're either in charge of teaching the younger troops or, for instance, me, I was six years and I was uh, the squadron flight VDOT controller, which basically meant that outside of our flight commander and our flight sergeant, I was third IC, third person in charge when we were on duty on shift. So I was the person who I was telling people where to go, uh, how to do things, what type of security for planes, what type of security uh, or what type of is issues they were dealing with everything. And I was doing that with 40 people. So when you turn around and you go, oh, I was handling 40 people and making sure we had $5.2 billion worth of resources secure at any given time. And then you're like, okay, now, but people think I'm just a follower and I'm just good at following orders. I don't have any skills. It's really weird, especially when you think like from my point of view, when I was in the military, I was doing the dual screen action thing, just like you do in the software industry. So I was like, well, you know, that's a natural world for me. 
So I think that's the first thing is don't, don't assume that we don't know anything just because uh, they're enlisted versus officer corps, because that we get that problem a lot. Actually recognize women veterans, a really huge epidemic that's been going on, like not just in the tech industry, but just in civilian culture period is they see a, you know, woman dressed in a Navy suit, Navy uh, shirt or Air Force hat or even a Marine hat, something like that. They're like, oh, your boyfriend joined, your husband joined, your, or something like that. They don't assume that the woman actually served her country. And we're finding a big prompt. Even we actually had a couple of months ago, one of our veterans who happened to be uh, using her military discount at a store was stopped. The person was like, oh, no, that's only, that's not for spouses, things of that nature. Like, wow, you know, wow. Like they just, this person just totally disregarded you. So uh, that's two big things I can think of that the tech culture and culture as a total can uh, not do. Thanks. Jerem, how can people with established careers in the software industry not just help veterans, but specifically help with vets who could? Uh, we have a mentorship email and a mentorship form. Um, if you want to volunteer, we're always looking for volunteers and people who come talk to our veterans. Actually, because in 2017, we're ramping up more of our processes and building more of a platform and not just an internal face-to-face 100% product. We're needing more and more of, uh, mentors to help our veterans in the other areas where they might not feel comfortable with. We've already gotten mentors from Apple and Facebook. We're very happy um, and grateful for those organizations for stepping up and helping us. That's one thing. Or always just tweet us at, uh, at Vets Who Code and like reach out and we'll definitely reach back to you. So we'd like to take this time out to thank one of our listeners, Wayne Robinson. Thank you so much for your contribution, Wayne. Uh, we are a listener-supported podcast. So if you would like to contribute, please go to patreon.com slash greater than code. When you become a contributor, you get access to our Slack community where you are able to network with other people, ask guest questions, and get access to some of our special little freebies that we only give out there. Thanks. I observed that in your career progression in your origin story, you went to various schools and jobs. And I think there were some other things scattered in there. But each thing you did, each job you accepted was not just the work. It was all about where it led you through who you met or what you learned or, well, mostly who you met. How can we, when we're looking at different jobs, evaluate which ones are going to give us that next opportunity. Where are we not just going to learn, but make the connections that we need to move up? For me, it was actually looking in like, I'm a very honest person with myself, I guess. That's the first person to be honest with. And uh, looking at yourself, uh, assessing your weaknesses and your strengths, and then seeing, researching where you can find to help shore up those weaknesses. Like I said, with veterans, uh, one of the biggest weaknesses is not our ability to work hard. It's not our ability to learn. It's our network. It's our community. So that was one reason why I uh, really focused on community. And it was the same way with building like my web development skills. It was, oh, you know, front end web development is starting to become the forefront of the web industry with, you know, the JavaScript of the month club has you know, going on now. And so that's, uh, <laughs> am I the only, like, you guys have heard that before, right? Uh, mm-hmm. so, Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> every month there's a new one. So it's like, you know, 
You're just going to stick with the most popular ones to keep it moving. But I focused on front-end web development because I knew those were in the forefront and those are quickly help my skills get known. And that was actually a reason why I chose Ruby on Rails. I wanted to start doing server-side technologies and for make my front-end designs actually, you know, do stuff. So that is, you know, you have to be honest. All right, where am I weak at? What do I need to do to no longer be weak there? It goes back to, I know people don't understand or like the boxing analogy, but it comes back to boxing in which, you know, you have to find out where your strengths are in the ring and where your weaknesses are. There are some people that they're long range boxers like Muhammad Ali. There's some people that are short range boxers like Mike Tyson. And you have to figure out what you are and what you can do to shore up the skills that can cover either cover up your weaknesses or shore up your weaknesses so that way they're not as easy to exploit when you're out of your element and your strength. I actually really like the boxing analogy because I think it fits with what you had mentioned earlier about the importance of community. Because if you're training as a boxer, you have a lot of people around you who are usually helping you. But when you get in the ring, it's just you. So you have to be prepared you know, to get punched in the face and be able to get back up and keep going. Yeah, that's what you're absolutely right. Uh, I tell our, we use that analogy for our troops. We're like, uh, you know, boxers, they have multiple coaches for their, that are good at um, their craft and you have uh, nutritionists and you have sparring partners and things of that nature. But in the end, just like, you know, the boxing, <laughs> the boxing match is like the code interview and that's just you. I can't be in there into jogging memory and things of that nature. So you have to listen to everything we say, practice everything we say diligently and then go from there and be able to excel when you get that opportunity. Time for the AAR. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome, we'd like to take time at the end of an episode to reflect on what we've talked about. And before we started recording, you said that there was a military analogy taking that time to reflect. What was that? AAR, after action report. So I guess it's time for our AAR. Who wants to go first? I can go first. So one of the things that I, I took from some of the things that you mentioned, Jerome, is when you talked about addressing the emotional intelligence in your curriculum which was something I had never thought about, about how important it is to give yourself the ability to keep remaining confident as you're learning these hard skills, which I think is a really important thing to take away. And also, I really liked your goal of just increasing 1% each day. Yeah. And how you don't always know what that 1% is going to be because you think it's going to be learning how to implement this cool new feature in the JavaScript of the month. But no, it's actually going to be debugging some weird crash on your Rails app and not with an operating system tool you didn't know about yet. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> I'm so happy that uh, that figure I learned that through the hard way. Like one of my weaknesses, because I come from my career field, I guess, in military was EQ. And as an executive director, you can't have a weakness like emotional intelligence, lack of that. That will crush you and your organization. So I found that weakness and I decided it's time for me to become stronger in that. And when I thought about not just what one of the things that helped me when I was learning how to code was that I knew, you know, I was able to always find a way to reassure myself that I get this because I would piggyback on other skills. So that's one of the things that I started focusing on. Like our, like we call our curriculum method crawl, walk, run, because it's based literally out how veterans prepare for deployments. 
And one of those reasons that we use it like that is because it always piggybacks and helps you build confidence by using the other things that you've learned. So I was like, you know, that's a brilliant way. So I'm not going to rebuild or remake what is already working. My takeaway is also a lot like yours, Astrid. I, I was fascinated by the part where there's the JavaScript of the month framework. And that's fine because you've also given people a solid footing by stabilizing on a Rails backend. And the important thing about Rails, which I find really fascinating, is how many resources are available for learning it and for troubleshooting it. Why we chose Ruby and Ruby on Rails was because people use data to say that JavaScript is what you should be learning. But in my opinion, Ruby is a far more forgiving uh, language and it helps you build your confidence up. So when you go into JavaScript, you're not seeing a lot of those things for the first time. You're just being a lot more constrictive, a lot more. Your code has to be is a lot less forgiving in JavaScript than it is in Ruby. So that's one of the things that why we chose Ruby and Ruby on Rails, because it naturally teaches you about the web. It teaches you about servers, things of that nature. Like when you go from Ruby to Rack to Sinatra to Rails, you've pretty much you've learned everything from like that you need to know about the web, how to deploy an app how to use Capistrano, things of that nature, how to make servers and make them talk, how to use uh, SQL. You've learned a lot of that where if you just started with JavaScript, you might just add front-end web development. So it's one of those things where that's why we chose it. Well, like, you know, you can learn, you'll learn a lot more from focusing on Ruby and Ruby on Rails than you'll start, you know, just at JavaScript because you don't have to get the push to learn more. And it's not a natural progression. Once you, if you started something in JavaScript, you have to decide that you want to learn more about JavaScript versus uh, with Ruby, you have to learn how to do more things. And it's a nat- like I said, it's like a natural growth. It's like raising a kid almost. I was pretty interested in a couple of things you said, Jerome. The first was that time is life. I think that's something that we really lose track of. And it's really easy to get. I know for me, if I'm working on a difficult problem, I can't let go of it until it's fixed. And that sort of dogged insistence on plowing through it can be good, but it can also be bad because I think um, life is also time. So we have to be very deliberate about how we're choosing to spend our time recognizing that our life is made up of these moments. The other thing I like that you said, you talked about not being married to the tool, but married to the problem to solve. I think this is something that a lot of people get tripped up on. I think people who have studied multiple languages do a little better with this because they're able to abstract the problem that they're solving and think of the solution outside of the particular tool set that they're using and then figure out how to implement it using that tool set. Whereas if you're just thinking with the vocabulary of a single language or a single framework, it can be more difficult to solve the problem. So I thought that was really interesting that you said that veterans come kind of out of the box with the idea of not being married to the tool, but married to the problem. Yeah, married to solving the problem. We don't really care about how the problem gets solved as long as it's yeah. solved no one gets in trouble like what's the most ethical way that we can solve this and like go home like, that's what it is like when the minute you go overseas to a deployment you can tell like who's been there the longest because you have troops that just got there and they're all extra gung-ho then you have like those have been there like three to six months and they're like listen we just want to solve this and then you have those who are about to go back home and they're like listen i don't care what you do just don't mess it up. I'm out this piece and try to go home before Christmas. That's it. So like, it's very funny when you're like, I've never had a deployment where like I 
wasn't either going to miss Christmas or I was going to like just not get in back home in a tail end for Christmas. So it was very funny to see that natural progression of like how people like ideologies and how they change over the course of a deployment. And that's why we um, view it when it comes to I see that in code programs and code schools all the time. And one of the things that when I went to one, I told them um, I never was stressed out at the code school. And one of the reasons when I, an instructor asked me, they were like, I was told, I told them, well, you know, nobody's really going to die. The worst thing that can happen is that I won't solve the problem. And that's not the end of the world. And all the other, when I see like my civilian counterparts freak out over things like, well, maybe we should like go on a walk or go for coffee, and just talk about this out. And sure enough, stepping away from the code, they'd be able to get back into the code and like actually solve the problem. Cause a lot of people don't understand that like stress clouds your judgment you start trying to force things you start not thinking clearly you forget things that you haven't used in a long time to actually be a solution you'd be amazed how many times people are killing themselves over a rails app not working when you know like did you restart your server and they're like no i didn't well maybe you should do that that's probably like the first thing you should always do it's like when a electronic is breaking like did you turn it off and turn it back on like it's the same thing do that see what happens uh, reflections. I actually, first and foremost, it's fun. I never had a full woman podcast. So I was a little terrified. I'm not even going to lie. I was like, oh my goodness, like, have Ruby rock stars and they're all women. I'm going to get eaten alive because they're smarter than guys. Uh, <laughs> so I was a little nervous. You guys asked, I, I de- definitely enjoy, you guys ask questions that a lot of people don't ask, a lot of good questions. Because when you're on other more technical shows or shows that are just focus only on the code and things of that nature. They don't ask about the people. And like, you know, I like that, that title of like being greater than code because, you know, in the end, what we do really revolves around the user, not us. And that's one thing that as a community and as a culture, we need to get that out of that mindset that all that matters is the code is the technology and not the lives that it's impacting and things of that nature. You know, it was really fun to have questions coming from that angle versus, you know, let's talk about how to solve this technical problem or why this, why that. So that was pretty, like, I I definitely enjoyed it. I'll be passing that on to other people too. Like maybe we should ask more questions about the impact of people's lives or how we change people's lives, which you guys did a really good job with. Thank you, Jerem. Thank you. Thank you. And today is the 21st of December. So thank you for joining us Christmas week. And I hope everybody has a very nice holiday. The end.